Hi, welcome to Classic Cavalcade. You notice I am dropping the, the comics this week because my guest Gideon Marcus is the creator of a wonderful website called Galactic Journey, which I'm privileged to be part of, and the uh, founder of a new publishing house called uh, Journey Press. Welcome, Gideon. I am just, I just love reading and being part of Galactic Journey. Um, for people who haven't encountered the site yet, can you talk a little bit about what what we all write about there and what your inspiration was? So Galactic Journey is a time machine to exactly 55 years ago. So right now I'm talking to you, it is September 20th. 18th, 20th. September 20th, 2019. But on Galactic Journey, we write as if it's September 20th, 1964. And we're all a bunch of fans from that era. So we talk about science fiction that's coming out. We talk about the space shots that went up. We talk about the Beatles invading the airwaves. We talk about the slim pencil skirt fashions of the day. We talk about the, the new IBM computers that fill an entire room. It's, we, we talk about the new fall season where the Munsters and the Addams Family and Johnny Quest and Flipper <laughs> have come out. Uh, it's very immersive. And it started out as just me because I had a pile of science fiction magazines and I wanted to write about them and, and to show the contents of them to a modern audience. Um, and eventually it just became the snowball where a bunch of people would comment, get excited, and want to write. And we've now got almost 20 people working with the journey. We uh, won the Rod Serling Award a couple of years ago for our coverage of the Twilight Zone, which just ended. We've got five years of Twilight Zone reviews on there. And we've been nominated for the Hugo now twice in a row in the best fanzine category, which I suppose is, is, is the best category for us because we really are kind of a fanzine just out of time. And it's just super rewarding, all this stuff. Um, people always ask us, why 55 years ago? And there's just an amazing resonance between that era and now, this world that the teenagers and young adults back then were creating comes to full flower today. The presidential election, Bob Dylan's music, Hurricane Dora and, and Dorian and, and hitting at the same time, but missing Alabama. I mean, there's just all sorts of amazing synchronicities between the two eras. It's, it's basically our world, just a little crappier in terms of technology and how people treat each other. And you cover the whole world. You forgot to mention me and my writing about comics, which I love doing. Um, but we also have writers who cover the Soviet Union and Germany and other parts of the world as well. So we get kind of this great spectrum of what was going on during that era. Right. It's this holistic view of, of fandom from every angle. Um, comics are a lot of fun because every few months we'll do a, a State of Comics post um, article on Spider-Man, Daredevil, Batman, The Flash, and we've had this rivalry going on for several years now where I am a Marvel champion and you're a national comics, better known as DC champion, um, and you tell me I'm a moron, uh, and I tell you you're an airhead, and then I remember just a few months ago we had a set of articles where we're like, you know, yes, but the other side has some points. <laughs> There's some good Marvels coming out, huh? You got into... Uh, what was the comic 
like you. Was it Spider-Man you got into? No, you didn't like Spider-Man. It was something else. It was the ugly art. And Sp- I think I like Fantastic Four because of all the cosmic battles. Mm. Which is funny because uh, Doom Patrol and the X-Men both derive ultimately from Fantastic Four. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I love those. I love those early Doom Patrol. You got me thinking about how much I love that Bruno Permiani Doom Patrol work. That's just such prime stuff. 64 is such a weird year for comics because it's really, there. there's a lot of great stuff going on, but at the same time, it's a lot of the same stuff, too. Um, it's very kind of homogenized at DC. And at Marvel, it's starting to come together, but doesn't quite come together yet in the way that it soon will. Um, and so it's just fun to really think about that era. I, I, I was actually going to pitch you a piece about um, the new look Batman, which premieres in 64. Uh, because uh, prior to about January 64, Batman was all these uh, very cheesy, low-rent space stories and, and other kind of gimmick stories. And then about 64, Carmine Infantino takes over the art, and Detective Comics especially becomes actually Detective Comics. Um, and Batman uh, becomes this very kind of adventure-type strip. And they get a lot more ground-level and a lot more entertaining. And that, that era from about 64 to the TV show premieres in 66 is really held in high regard. Interesting. I, I would definitely love to have it. Don't forget that um, that the comics came out several months before their, their cover date. So if you cover it, uh, you'll want to keep that in mind. Yeah, yeah. Now I have a resource I use for that. Um, so you're a publisher, too. So glad for you. This is a cool step up. Thank you. We uh, it came out kind of kind of uh, on the side. There were several things that went into it. So the first impetus was I'm reading all these magazines. So back then, science fiction almost exclusively came out of magazines. It was starting to increasingly come out in novels. Um, but if it was print, uh, there was a long tradition of them coming out in science fiction magazines. Back in the early 50s, there were 40 fiction magazines coming out every month. Wow. Um, that was unsustainable. By the end of the 50s, there were six. But as of 1964, we're back up to about 10. Hmm. And I'm reading all these stories, and there's so many great stories that we just don't remember today because they're, they're so long ago. And one thing I noticed as I was reading is Whitman wrote about, oh, 10 to 15 percent of all the science fiction that was coming out at the time. Um, but of the stuff that I really liked, it was actually about 25 percent written by women. And I found that an interesting phenomenon. Why were women disproportionately writing better science fiction pound for pound? Uh, than their male colleagues, and, and there's there's a lot of reasons that could be subjective, I don't know, um, but I liked them, and so I was thinking, you know, someday it'd be cool to make a collection of, of my favorite stories from this era that I had covered, and then in November, I went to LostCon, which is Los Angeles' science fiction convention, it's been going since the early 70s, and um, I met this guy who had purchased the right to... Um, Frederick Brown's The Office. He founded a publishing house just to publish this book. And I and that was like a revelation to me. We've now approached an era when printing and distribution is so easy now that once you figure out how to lay out a book and put it together nicely, 
the barrier to publication is actually very low. And so it's much more about how good a product you can make. I said, all right, I've got to make, I've got to make this book. So I put together 14 of my favorite stories by women. Um, and I called it rediscovery science fiction by women, 1958 to 1963. And the idea is this is volume one and I plan to do a volume two, which will probably be the prior five years. And then I'll do a volume three, which will be the subsequent five years. And then just go, every five years until hmm. until I run out. Um, but the neat thing about the book is I actually enlisted the aid of about a dozen, what James Nichol called an army, <laughs> an army of writers. These are all women who are writers today of, of various levels of success and clearly on the rise. So one of them has done stuff for fantasy and science fiction and other magazines. One just sold a TV show. Um, but I've also got people who write for The Journey. Uh, my daughter, who is an up-and-coming writer, is, is one of the introducers. So the idea is we have these old stories, timeless stories, though, and they're all introduced. All their context is given by current writers who, in many ways, are kind of in the same position as these writers were back then. And uh, it's just a, I, I'm, I, I don't mean to toot my own horn, but it's a really cool book. I, when I first got the proofs back from Amazon, I was like, wow, this thing looks amazing. Um, and it's, it's already selling. We launched it a couple of weeks ago. It's selling very well. Um, it's in some bookstores now. And uh, it's just really neat. I like the diversity of what you present there. There's one science fiction poem. There's, um, I think, 14 other, 14 stories. By 13, 13 other stories. 13 other stories by, I think, 12 other authors. There's one author who's there twice. And a tremendous diversity of authors as well. Right. Right. They're not the names you see. So there have been a few anthologies that feature only women penned science fiction. But you tend to see the same names. And, and there's sort of this this odd phenomenon. If you ask people, you know, who are some women science fiction authors? And immediately they'll say to Priscilla K. Le Guin. They'll say Anne McCaffrey. Um Sometimes they'll say James Tipper Jr. and Joanna Russ. Uh, if, if they're really savvy, they'll say Lee Brackett, C.L. Moore. There's a, uh, Andrew Norton, uh, who wrote under a male name. Um, some people, they know some names, but they don't know most of the names. And one of the things I was surprised to find out was there were three dozen women actively writing science fiction before Ursula K. Le Guin. Hmm. I mean, immediately before her, not, not just over time, but just in the 50s, there were tons of women writing. Um, and that was really new to me. And they, these were names I'd never heard of before. Sidney Van Syok, uh, Doris Pitkin-Buck, uh, Otis Kidwell, Roselle George-Brown. I, I vaguely knew of her. She co-wrote a, a really nice book with Keith Laumer called Earthblood, uh, which, which my daughter's actually reading right now and she's really enjoying. Hmm. So it was just, it was a rediscovery for me. And, that, and I'm trying to convey to my audience just how exciting it is to, to find these authors and these amazing works that they did. I mean, I was struck by, on one hand, you have a story by Judith Merrill, a wonderful story about a woman working for the Space Force, who was like a really important anthologizer and pretty well known by people who, under, who understand the era. On the other hand, you had Deer Park by Maria Russell, which was a deeply moving story, and it was her only published short story that we know of. Um, right. And, and just that diversity alone, it's just in really fascinating. Um, I was amazed that uh, Pauline Ashwell's Unwillingly to School um, has has rarely been reprinted. She put it in a collection of four stories of the same character uh, in the early 80s. 
But Pauline Ashwell is, is pretty much forgotten today. She sadly passed away a few years ago. Um, but in 1958, she was voted one of the most promising new authors. Uh, and her story, Unwillingly, Unwillingly to School, uh, was Hugo-nominated. And it's just an amazing story. If you read it, it's just it's funny um, and, and very quirky. And it takes up a good portion of our book. It's, it's our longest story, and it's, it's the whole back end. Oh, it's, it's just a delightful story. Uh, it just has this depth and, and intriguing quality to it that I just enjoy tremendously. I think that, and um, what was the story about the um, religious philosopher who lands on the planet and tries to convert it and kind of ends up having, just being continually misunderstood? Um, I think that was my other favorite. Um, of all possible worlds. Of all possible worlds, yes. Which was all, uh, also a Russell George Brown story. Who um, right. is in there twice? Who, yeah, well, I, part of the reason she's in there twice is I just she she's one of my my favorites, and she she died way too early of uh, of I think it was cancer in '67, um, and she just had way more to write. She was she came, she came out right out of the gate with a bang in the late '50s, and and she put out a bunch of stories that were like to my to my taste they were like almost great. Uh, and then she came out with Step 4, and that, that hit it out of the park for me, and then Of All Possible Worlds was even better. Uh, and then, of course, I really liked Earth, but I understand she's got some novels coming out soon, from my perspective, in, in the mid-60s, okay. uh, that I'm really looking forward to. Hmm. I might have to try and pick up one of those and write about it. Oh, uh, yeah, Step 4 also was just a delightful story, and just so interesting. <laughs> Del- delightful, I don't know is the word I would... I would it's a yeah. real downer of a story. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Um, Kit Reed claims she was never discriminated against due to her gender, and you talked to, you actually interacted with her on social media. So that was exciting. Kit Reed was one of, was the only one of the authors in the book who I actually got to know before she passed away. And it's really sad, too, because Catherine McLean died two days after the book came out. Mm. Um, Sidney Van Syok and, uh, and... Otis Kitwell Berger, I believe, are still alive too, but I haven't been able to get a hold of them. But Kit Reed and I had a conversation on Facebook um, over several of her earliest stories, and I would ask her for any anecdotes she had about them. And To Lift a Ship was actually the last story we talked about before she passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and she was just a very nice person, very forthcoming. Um, and she is interesting. So she's one of the rare people who got published off the slush pile. She'd sent in a story yeah. in FNSF. And from what I understand, people said, oh, you need to send this in FNSF. So there may have been some some way paved for her. She was a journalist. She sent in her story. It got published. And then she was an FNSF exclusive uh, for the next many years. In fact, uh, the first story she wrote that got published elsewhere just came out uh, this month, 55 years ago. Uh, and it wasn't very good, unfortunately. It's, it's the first story about her I read. I'm like, nah, not so great. And I'm like, I'm not surprised it came out in one of the lesser mags, not an FNSF, but, you know, even Homer nods. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's cool. I mean, so you and I both have done uh, published works around history. And one of the things I found writing about my comics history is the top line people are always remembered. You know, in your world, the Asimovs and Paul Anderson 
as well as maybe the Judith Merrill and Ursula K. Le Guin are, are remembered. In my world, you know, Gil Kane and Stanley and Steve Ditko are remembered. But the second and third level people, the Jack Sparlings of the world and Mike Sikowski's of the world in the comics world, or, you know, the Joy Leach or, or Kit Reeds, who um, in your world are just kind of in this netherland where they're itching to be rediscovered by a, next, a new generation of readers. Yeah, and part of the reason why it's difficult for them to get rediscovered is, aside from the fact that there's a, a double generation gap at this point, um, there's also so much stuff being printed today. There, there's way more science fiction being produced these days. So the example I always use is uh, Cordwainer Smith. So he's a guy who wrote in the early 50s. Um, he had a very unusual background. He, uh, his godfather was Sun Yat-sen of China. Um, and when he wrote, it was, it was from another world. His stuff was just very poetic and very much not in the same, same, with the same sort of rules as everybody else at the time. And he just wrote so many great stories from the 50s to the 60s. And he also died early, too. Um, and very few people know who he is. And those who do think he's great, although, you know, there's 10% who can't stand his work. Um, but I love it. Um, and then you got Bob Shackley, who started writing short stories in the early 50s. And he wrote these amazing, satirical, funny, odd, sometimes horrific stories for magazines throughout the 50s. Um, and then he sort of disappeared from, from science fiction because he ended up writing a bunch of mainstream stuff and then he wrote a bunch of novels which weren't that great but he came out with like eight collections of his science fiction stories and they're some of the best reading in the world and I don't know many people know who Bob Sheckley is at one of my um, I do I do talks at conventions where I'll just come out on stage and I'm wearing my skinny tie and my my suits and I and I look like I just walked out of the early 60s and that's my shtick right and I'm I'm the traveler from 1964 and I'm going to tell you what's going on and you can ask me any question and I did a show a couple of years ago where um, there was a lady in the audience and she asked a really good question so at the end I gave her a prize and it was a Robert Checkley collection and she devoured it and a week later she's like this was amazing she's only 25. Mm-hmm. So she she is she is this generation and this book spoke to her mm-hmm. and and I think a lot of the stuff that I'm rediscovering will speak to people especially since I'm curating and finding what I think is the best stuff. I don't think the writing feels outdated. In fact, it felt very fresh to me by and large. Um, there's some work that's just beautifully written. Um, I think it was the Putnam collection or Putnam tradition where it just seemed like every word was chosen in a way that just added such beauty to the stories. Um, and and I don't think you encounter anything that's quite as beautifully written these days, or at least I, I'm not commonly finding that sort of material. Um, go ahead. Uh, again, there's so much coming out that, you know, Ted Sturgeon famously said 90% of everything is crap. Yeah. So I, I go back to the, this five-year period, and I find 14 stories out of a thousand that were published. And then no question, they're, they're going to be like, oh, my God, these, these are amazing. They knew how to write back then. No one knows how to write today. Um, the lady who runs, I believe it was, I can't remember what the name of the magazine was. Maybe a Shimmer. I can't remember. It's, it's a magazine that was up for the Hugo this year, and it also folded this year. Um, so it doesn't exist anymore. And she sent me what she said she felt was her was her favorite 
a story that had never been published in her magazine. And, and I read it, uh, and it was good. It was a solid magazine. It was it was a magazine, uh, a story that would have been perfectly at place in uh, fantasy and science fiction from 55 years ago. So so people are still writing and still writing well. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's plenty of competition, and 90% of it is crap. Which is yeah, as you say, has always been true. I mean, even in the days when there were ten science fiction magazines, chances are you and you're seeing this in your writing and in your reading that you know you're finding one or two stories per issue, maybe that are really worth remembering. Times ten magazines, um, right? It's at best it's twenty five percent of all stories. But when you hit that every, one every, story, every, right? Every month you could take all the stories that are what I call four and five star stories, the really excellent ones. And they would make an, an, a really amazing magazine every month, but they, they don't make a really amazing magazine. They're spread amongst 10 magazines. So you get a, mag, a bunch of magazines that have some good stories and some awful stories and, and you trudge through it because that's what you got. Is that part of what your goal is for journey press is to resurrect the best of these eras? I have two goals for Journey Press. So, yes, one of the one of the goals is to take all the best stuff, stuff that's been forgotten, and I, I particularly spotlight women at this point because I I feel they're more forgotten proportionally. Um, but I'm not excluding the possibility of publishing other stuff. Um, and in fact, for instance, uh, David Rome was an author back then, and he's actually a writer for The Journey today. He's got a couple of articles on The Journey. That's, that's one of the most amazing wow. things, right? 55 years later, and he's, he's a contributor to The Journey. Wow. Nicest guy you ever never saw. Um, and I sent him an e- email the other day. I really hope he's still alive, um, asking him if he's got any books from the time that he would like to have looked at. Because if they're good, I'd love to reprint them. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's written, I mean, he's got some stuff that's bad, he's got some stuff that's hack, and he's got some stuff that's good, just like every author of the time. But the other thing I want to do with Journey Press is um, I want to print good new stuff. So there's there are millions of people who, who want to be writers and tens of thousands of people who fancy themselves writers and, and a thousand writers who are good um, and should be published. And there's only a few dozen outlets that do publish. So every week, uh, if if you work for a magazine, you're a slush reader, which means that you get all the unsolicited stories. And you might have to go through 100 stories every week. And you might have seven other slush readers who work with you. So 700 stories every week. And of those, seven get passed to the editor. Mm -hmm. And of those, the editor might pick one or two. So... It's not that 1% of all the stories the editor gets are any good. It's that 1% is all this person can fit that, that happens to appeal to whatever sensibility or space restrictions they have at the time. I want to make another platform that people can write on. And, you know, selfishly, I'm, I'm going to print my own stuff too because I happen to think it's quite good and so do people who don't even share my last name. So, <laughs> but, but you can bet if it comes out in Journey Press, it's going to be really good stuff, whether whether I wrote it or, or anybody else did. There really is a niche for someone to be uh, curating the best of the good, the good new stuff and become a trusted publisher. Right. And as you say, with the cost being really low, um, although you haven't had to deal yet with bookstore returns, I understand that's a major problem for many publishers. Um, if, if they do it, 
if they try to do it themselves, which, which I wouldn't do. So the nice thing is um, there's a distributor called Ingram, and, and uh, you know, I, I praise and curse them in the same breath because they're they're not, they're compared to Amazon, they're a penny any operation, but uh, they're one of the only games in town with bookstores. And the nice thing is, is while they will take a huge cut of your profit, such that you're only making a couple dollars per book, um, they will handle all the distribution, they will handle returns, um, the discounting, all stuff like that. So if you are willing to let the middleman do all the work, uh, you can get in bookstores pretty easily. And so that's that's not a big issue. And you get to concentrate on the work that you really, truly enjoy. Right. Um, back to Rediscovery, who wrote all the biographies? Because I was deeply impressed by the fact that you had good biographies for even the most obscure writers. So who wrote them? Yeah. Did you assemble them? And how, if so, how did you do research on, like, Ann Walker? Uh, so I didn't... So each... What I did was I found... Uh, 13, 14 people. Well, actually, I found 12. So I wrote one of the biographies. I, I, I dipped Kid Reed because I happened to know her and I, I knew the story and I talked to her about that particular story. Um, and A.J. Howells uh, was the guy who originally got me excited. He's the one who did the, the Frederick Brown story. Um, and he did the original transcription of all of these stories, mm. uh, which then Janice, the, the final editor, went through and, and, and did the, the second corrections and made sure everything was letter perfect. So A.J. Howells did another one of them. Um, but I just found 12 people, and, I, and I'm, I'm in a blessed position. I know lots and lots and lots of writers because of what they do. Um, so several of them happen to be connected to the journey. Uh, so that's how I found people like uh, Natalie DeVitt and uh, Erica Frank and, of course, my wife and my daughter. Um, but others I just found in the course of business. So Marie Vibbert I met on Twitter. Uh, she has an amazing project she's working on where she's statistically analyzing all the major magazines over the last 80 years and finding out um, the incidence of women who wrote under their normal name, their regular names, and under pseudonyms and or initials. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and I would say it's about half. Um, Interesting. Just an anecdotally. Uh, now, of course, a lot of guys wrote under initials, too. Um, but there are other things that give it away. So, for instance, in, in le if you wrote for fantasy and science fiction, they would tell what, tell what gender you were, uh, generally, in the, on the uh, autobiographical or the biographical blurb that preceded every story. Um, other magazines would not. Um, and I think there was just an assumption that if you used initials, you were a guy. So if you were a woman and you used initials, um, you were kind of hiding. Uh, and if you're a guy using initials, then you had other reasons. I, I, I don't know what they might be. Maybe maybe you're appearing other things or you just hate your names. Um, and uh, Cora Bullard is a very famous fan writer. She works for The Journey Now, too, but she started out, uh, she's been, uh, she's collected uh, dozens of Humo, uh, Hugo nominations every year, and someday I think she's going to win. Um, and she was the first to really write about uh, Poppygate. <laughs> Several years ago, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. which is which was the science fiction uh, equivalent of Gamergate, I guess. I was not involved in that, thankfully, because I lived 55 years ago and avoided all of it. Um, who else have we got? Uh, TD Cloud uh, is an independent uh, novelist. Uh, she writes mostly queer romance. Um, so just just all sorts of also Erica Friedman is of course an icon. She. Uh, she founded Yurikon and 
basically made America aware of Yuri, which is to say uh, lesbian comics in Japan. Uh, she brought them here and, and made it uh, accessible to people in America. So just a, a lot of really interesting, diverse, and big names, and some people who, who are not so big yet. Um, but I wanted a real cross-section of backgrounds and demographics, uh, and, and I think it tells in, in the biographies. Uh, they did a lot of research to, to find out who these people are and, and give you an idea the context of it. It's just so impressive that they really got into depth about these often very challenging or people who they had trouble I would have trouble finding information about it. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, I, you, you forgot. You did mention Rose Benton, who's someone who I was happy to have work for me on Comics Bolton, and I think is just an outstanding writer. She, yeah, I, I, there's a lot of people to remember, actually. Rose Benton still works for The Journey. Um, Rose Benton is, uh, she has a master's in, I think it's Cold War psychology or pop culture, something like that. She's she's extremely knowledgeable. So when she, she writes about science fiction movies or Vincent Price or, or she does book reviews or, or she writes about comics. She's just, yeah, she's, she's real sharp. I also got to say greedily as a comic guy, I love you printing old spot art from the stories. Um, there's art by people like Gray Morrow, who was an artist for years and years. Um, mm. Uh, John Gianta, who worked for DC for many years, is considered to actually be one of the more conservative DC artists, but was um, really prominent in the pulps. Um, and there's been a lot of kind of rediscovery of that stuff, too. The Marvel pulps had work by people like Jack Kirby back in the day. Um, and then other stuff by, like, real visionary artists like John, like Ed Emshwiller. Um So even just in terms of, like, just going to the site and, and seeing some... Um, just delightful art is just... Uh, you you just can enjoy fun. it just for the pictures. Yeah. Um, but what's really cool is, so the cover of Rediscovery is a, is a is taken from a pretty famous cover of Astounding from 1957. Uh, it's by Kelly Frias, who I, I was one of the big three or four in the 50s mm -hmm. of uh, doing magazine covers. Um, and was really neat. This is part of the reason why I did the book. At LostCon, I met Laura Frias, his widow, um, who is also an accomplished artist in her own right. And uh, very early in the project, I approached her and said, look, can I, can I license this picture? Um, because I, I can't think of a better picture. One, one of the first non-sexualized uh, women on the cover of a science fiction magazine. Um, and would she do the foreword? Uh, and she agreed to do both. Um, and it was just an absolute delight uh, and a coup to have Laura Friedis in on the project. It's just a cool project. I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it. And it fits my love for picking up old science fiction magazines and just ha allowing myself the chance to read something with no preconceptions in mind. Um, I think one of the joys I think that you may share on that is, uh, aside from reading stories by prominent authors, is this chance to discover material that you never knew existed and occasionally it will blow you away. Um, Someone asked me at a very recent convention, and I'd never gotten this question before, it was interesting. So I, I live most of my life 55 years ago. I mean, obviously, I, I understand modern technology. I used to run a software company, and, and, and I'm aware of what's going on in our world. But if you go to my house, it's, it's almost like a time capsule. I've got a radio station that plays the hits over AM radio. 
um, of, of, the, of exactly 55 years ago. So the Beatles and the Beach Boys and the Kinks are just coming out and the Supremes and Bob Dylan, all, all, all these people who were big at the time, they're all on the radio station. If you turn on Channel 9, I have a TV station where it plays all the, the TV of the time. And someone and I read the, the newspapers of the time. So someone asked me, do you enjoy living in the past? And I had to think about that. And there are some things that suck about the past, which thankfully I don't have to deal with. So, for instance, um, racism and chauvinism mm-hmm. uh, was much more of an issue in the early 60s. And, uh, and that, even if I would not personally be the target so much, although being Jewish, there would definitely be some. There would be places I'm, I'm not allowed to live. There would be some snide remarks. There would be issues of politics and so forth. Yeah. Um, not as bad as, say, in the 40s, uh, but some lingering effects. But it would just kill me to see what's going on in the world and having to, you know, civil rights is, is, is at its peak of fighting. The, the, the cities are, are written filled with riots and integration is going on and there's a backlash again. So it's it's a difficult time in that regard. But uh, more viscerally, everybody smokes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I hate cigarette smoke. Mm-hmm. So so in terms of that, those Food things suck. Those, good. Are the, yeah. uh, those are things I don't have to deal with so much. But the thing that I love, and, and if you trim the conversation, you can just cut it to this. The thing that I love <laughs> is that because I'm stuck living one day at a time like everybody else did at the time, I'm not, I'm not picking things out that people have told me are good. I'm reading everything. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I read a lot of crap. I read a lot of stuff that's okay but forgettable. But I also read stuff that no one in 2019 could tell me, oh, yeah, you should have read that because they've forgotten it exists. Mm-hmm. And I read it, I'm like, wow, this is, this is really good. I'm glad I found Hey, hey, you should read this too. This is really neat. It's like, it's like, I don't know, finding Troy. You know, you don't have to go back 55 years for that. So writing my book about comics in the 1990s, I was continually discovering stuff from as recent as 20 years ago that just really excited me. And I realized there's almost nothing that's ever been written about it. Um, again and again, I found these, what I feel are lost classics that have kind of dropped off everybody's radar. If they were even on anyone's radar at the time. And one of the joys of writing history is this chance to kind of share this stuff with other people and say, Hey, look, you know, you might want to put this on your reading list because this is really amazing. That kind of rediscovery can make something more popular, more compelling, uh, than it ever was. So, for instance, uh, when the movie Hidden Figures came then the movie came out. Um, and the movie is not great history in terms of accuracy, mm-hmm. but in terms of getting people excited about African-American programmers from the early 60s in the space program, there's nothing better. And all of a sudden, that's like a really interesting topic, uh, one that I've, I've spoken about at various venues. Uh, and people love it. And it's something it's something they didn't even know they wanted to learn about until someone said, no, look, this is really neat, and framed it in such a way that, that it got exciting. So all these things, your, your comics 20 years ago, my story's 55 years ago, but who knows what people will find from 2,000 years ago, whatever, we go, hey, look at this thing, isn't it cool? And it might get more appreciation now than it ever did back then. I think so. And that's actually, that takes us full circle back to rediscovery, because rediscovering these stories isn't even like rediscovering. It's like, 
if you were to take the time that that the date of that these were written off the book, I think many of these stories would read like uh, contemporary works of fiction, and can be enjoyed without any level of irony or nostalgia for the past. Right. Um, although taken together, they 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 have a very interesting message because they're written by women. Um, they're written by people who knew what it was to be women, to, to be often to be marginalized, to not be taken so seriously. I mean, that, that message comes out loud and clear in St. Joy Leach's Satisfaction Guaranteed, where mm-hmm. where the uh, the female secretary is the smart one and her boss is the moron, um, and yet he's going to get all the credit. But at the but at the same time, even, even just under the surface, even just subtextually, there's a bit of that. I, I would not say that these works were chosen because they have a feminist bent, um, but it is impossible to get away from the book and not have some idea of what a, a feminine viewpoint was. The other thing that we hit is there's a couple of stories that involve people with disabilities, yeah. which is not something that, that people were writing about very much. And they're handled so well in, in each of the stories, in that you really feel in inside the world that they're experiencing, and they're not treated in any sort of pandering way. Another thing, right? I, I think I, I think that it's possible to have sort of a flavor of the month, um, and you know what we're what's going to be written about, what's what's going to sell this time, whether whether it's a, a certain culture or a certain topic, or you know, in the eighties, everyone was writing anti-drug songs, right? You know, uh-huh. th- things things are hot, things are topics to discuss, um, and these stories, I they were just. They were writing science fiction. They were writing stories that would sell in magazines that would be good and appeal to people. Um, and so they often have important points to make and poignant things to say, um, but they weren't all coming from some kind of agenda. No, I, I didn't feel like there was an agenda as much as a lot of the themes just emerged from the stories. They were just inherent to the stories. Do you have anything else you want to mention about this this project? I hope people buy it, not just to help Journey Press out, but because uh, I think this is an important work to have. I think this is one of those one of those books that will. I, I think it's an important book. I think it's I think it's going to really intro, It can really introduce you to a whole world that you didn't know existed in so many ways. It, it can introduce you to Silver Age science fiction. It can introduce you to women science fiction authors. Um, you could even give it to someone who's never just read science fiction before, and they might be turned on to science fiction as a genre as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just one of those works. I know I sound really bombastic, but I just think it's, it's a really important work. Um, I know uh, James Nichol, who is a, a Hugo-nominated writer, who has a project called Young People Read Old Science Fiction, and every year he uh, enlists a bunch of people to read a bunch of classic science fiction stories. And uh, he is using Rediscovery as his textbook this year. So he's got 11 people who are going to read the stories and review them and and talk about what they mean to them. And these are people who never have heard of these people before, never read these stories before, and I'm very keen to find out what they're thinking. I really hope they say nice things. <laughs> I think that's a good point to end this. Thank you, Gideon. Really appreciate you giving up the time to chat about such a cool project. And I Well, uh, I really really enjoyed being on the program. Thank you.